everyone, this is Viv, and you're listening to the What Gives Podcast. So we are back with the third episode of What Gives for APAM Month, and today I have with me Rohan Jolie, pronouns they, them, founder of the Blasian March in New York City, and we actually met at a party a long time ago in Chicago. So I am so happy to have you here and talk to us about the Blasian March and just, yeah, hope you'll enlighten us about some of the current things that you're working on and some of the issues that we are facing. Yeah, so the first one we did in October here, well, October in New York here, also in Los Angeles at the same time. And for me, it kind of came around because of personal experiences I was having in the recent wave of Black Lives Matter marches and several spinoffs that I was seeing in the Asian community. But a lot of times there wasn't a direct action that was actually bringing people together because you know, last summer we were all marching for George Floyd um, and other Black lives. And at the same time here in New York was kind of when people started to notice the uptick in hate crimes towards Asian Americans, uh, specifically our elders. And for me, it was really complicated being both Black and Asian, having to pick one or the other, having to be like, are you going to march for the Asian people today or the Black people today? I was like, but I'm both. I I can't just like (laughs) dissect my entire body and identity, right, for separate political constructs. And, you know, for me, what I've also been noticing is a lot of times solidarity right now is being built in reaction to the media, in reaction to white directed narratives on what solidarity should look like. When for me, solidarity needs to be more rooted in our very, very long history of collective resistance, of collective work for collective liberation. So that's kind of what was the ground for the Blasian March. For me, it was just to say, like, am I Blasian? But like in the title, Black and Asian are mushed together. So it's directly calling both Black and Asian communities into the space. I love that. And I feel like there is such a long history in America, but also in Asia of just Black people and Asian working together. And then just the history of Blasians. You know, there is that new anime on Netflix called Yasuke. Yasuke. I don't, I don't even know how to say it. It's on my list to watch, but it's about Black people in feudal Japan, right? No, that's correct. It's based on, I think, the first... Well, the only African samurai that we know of who was in feudal Japan. So, so good. There's also a book on it too. So, but it's, we have such a long history. And then just looking at the American landscape during, you know, Vincent Chin, when he was murdered, there was a lot of Black activists that helped the Asian civil rights movement. And then right now, the Asian hate crimes, you see a lot of people you know, exchanging mutual aids, exchanging help, exchanging community. And it's just, we have a longstanding relationship. And I think the solidarity piece is something that is starting to take its shape. And that's why I think it's really important that you're doing this march. Now, can you tell me more about the education piece 
like I know right now a big topic of conversation is like the model minority is a huge construct that is continuously dividing our communities right can you tell us about some other constructs and the history yeah I mean definitely the model minority myth which came about I believe in the 60s by a white guy and it really is such a dangerous concept because not only does it teach Asian communities absolute false truths, it erases our history. And I can't help but quote a Filipino hero, Jose Rizal, and he said, no history, no self, no history, self. So uh, the first sentence would be like, N-O, history, N-O, self. And then the second sentence is K-N-O-W, history, K-N-O-W, self. And I see that lot actually in both communities because both sets of communities have experienced so much racial violence, so much trauma over centuries that's been inherited. But because we don't know our history, we have this compounded historic inherited trauma that is unfortunately, in my perspective, being misdirected at each other. So a lot of the educational component for me, kind of reflexive of my own process, parents are Blasian, Black and Asian. And so we grew up with this like, being proud that we were mixed. But of course, when I walk into greater society, there is the, well, all the tension and the confusion of how do Black and Asian people make babies? And I'm like, it's called science, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) And I've experienced like experiencing both, not only just white supremacist violence, white societal violence, also experience anti-Blackness and anti-Asianness at the same time. Um, so for me, a lot of my healing process really has been just surrounding myself with the history, with the knowledge of what people have experienced, what my people have survived in this country. So learning about Page Act of 1875, which barred all Chinese women immigration to the States because they assumed that all Chinese women were sex workers. Just like, mind your business, <laughs> I her do what she wants, but okay, whatever. And then that follows the 1802 um, Chinese Exclusion Act, which barred almost all Chinese labor immigration, except for a small quota. And that's actually how my great-grandfather came here under false documentation. <laughs> and even like reading parts of my Filipino side, reading books like Carlos Bolosan's America's in the Heart, that book actually really catapulted me into the Black Lives Matter movement, even though it was written by a Filipino immigrant man, because a lot of scenes in the book detail white violence, very, very extreme white violence towards Filipino. Um, He details um, several lynching scenes of Filipino men. And for me, that's when, you know, I started to realize both of our communities have experienced so many parallels around white systemic violence, white state-sanctioned violence, that I think educating myself and the community on these parallels, I think really is key components of building solidarity. Yeah, and I think there is another face of white violence, and it's further separating Black people and Asian people, and that's just another violent act against us all. I know there's a multitude of problems, right? Is is there a set goal that you have with the Blasian March? What are you trying to accomplish? And who is this community that you're building? 
Well, right now, my set goal is to build long-term community. I think that is also a crucial and key component to dismantling white colonial settler structures press all of us. So when we build community, we can then build resources together. When we build resources together, we don't have to rely on white structures that demand our poverty, demand our isolation from one another, which probably most likely I not see in my lifetime, but that's okay. I would rather take that one step to make it a little bit closer to something else. We're sowing the um, seeds. <laughs> we are sowing the seeds. We are sowing the seeds. We are the stems of the abolitionists who have come before <laughs> us. <laughs> but I think another goal that I am personally finding so much joy in is building moments of celebration between all of us. You know, the first Blasian March was really uplifting in a weird way because, you know, I I made up some chants that were specifically giving equal language to both Black and Asian communities. And I know that was a little like, do we need to say that? Um, (laughs) It was like Black power, Asian power. And it was just so many other Asian organizers organizers were just so shocked (laughs) to hear the term Asian power. Like, never heard that before. (laughs) In this uninhibited exchange of intersectional power, we can't be apologetic about what we have. We can't be silent to amplify somebody else, which is like, in some spaces, that is appropriate. Some spaces, that is necessary. I know February 20, I, independent of the Blasian March, organized an emergency rally in New York for the Asian American community. And so many Black organizers stepped in helped out so many Latinx guys who stepped in and helped out. And it was so beautiful just to see that, but all of them understood that, you know, we're here to amplify Asian voices, to amplify Asian experiences right now. That was beautiful. And for the Blasian March, for me, it's more just how can I lift equally and let equal both voices and experience, sets of voices and experiences be heard. And I just feel like, yeah, joy is such a powerful weapon against white systemic violence because we don't know who we are, because we don't know our history. Our society is really teaching us how to be depressed. It's really systemically this long-term mental health crisis and communal depression between all of us. So it really is that much more important to build spaces of joy where we can like share joy, share power, share music and share food, share space, you know? Yeah, I love that. And you're right. I feel like Black pain and anguish and now Asian suffering is so at the forefront of even what we do and what we amplify that we forget the joy part and how that is also a powerful tool. Yeah, I I myself forget that, you know, even working in the nonprofit space, they call it poverty porn. And that's something that we use to invoke empathy and how we we get donor dollars. I feel like everybody is starting to move away from that because we realize there is so much power in exhibiting our joy. And I love that part of the Blasian March. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have certain call to actions that you are asking from the community? One call to 
action is definitely continue to educate yourself, continue to advocate for a system of education where we write the books and we teach our communities. One call to action is a lot of internal work. It is abolishing white structures within your own mind. And something I've definitely been missing a lot in organizing spaces, I, I feel that while we are fighting for Black lives, fighting for Asian lives, like our native sovereignty, there's so many white trucks in our own heads that we still have to like undo and proactively acknowledge we are so trained to behave in a model of scarcity, behave in a model of competition. In a space of solidarity, I think we definitely need to acknowledge within ourselves how sometimes we tend to imitate and use master's tools to reference Audre Lorde. I think we get to do a lot of internal work. That really is my, my, my long-term call to action. Educate yourselves and through that, do the long-term work of dismantling the slavery in your mind. It is so hard to like, when you think so about hard. 40 hours, most of us spending 40 hours a week at work, right. And having to put on professional speech and look professional and all of that was directly given to us by the white power structure. And just where you can start dismantling at work, <laughs> which is so much of your time. And then even with your friends and when things make you uncomfortable and it's like, why does that make you uncomfortable? Like why does conflict and disagreement make you uncomfortable? And we value peace over uncomfortable conversations. Like that's a whole nother thing that I think is a tool to use that is used to silence us. So yeah, there is a lot of internal work that everybody needs mm. to do. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, I definitely feel that a lot of times, yeah, it's being spun as these are difficult conversations. But why don't we spin them as these are healing conversations where we need to have these dialogues about how we've harmed each other, how we've made mistakes regarding each other's dignity. And when we talk about it from the perspective of this healing conversation, I think it then becomes, okay, we're approaching this from a space of care. We are approaching this from a space of we've all made mistakes. Mistakes will continue to happen. We are all human. So creating those safety guide, those emotional safety guidelines, create those rules to make it a braver space, more honest healing dialogue. I think that's where that can start as well. Definitely. And on that note, I'm going to just call all my fights with my partner healing conversations and <laughs> we need to have this conversation yes, yes. <laughs> um, not to have a healing conversation some doors I, may be slammed but that's part of the conversation it's fine i love you okay are great. you uncomfortable <laughs> now <laughs> um that's so great well i do want to switch gears a little bit mm-hmm. and talk about your identity and talk about identity in general because i feel like the work that you're doing and so many people are doing is so directly hitting on people's identity, right? And that may steer people away from the movement because they are so scared of confronting some parts of their identity. And it also might empower people because they may have never stepped into their identity. So I want to hear about how you've brought your identity to your work. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's such a good point, especially especially about who are afraid to step into it. 
And I think that's okay. It's a very, very long process. Like I'm about to turn 30. Ah, I didn't say that. But <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a very long process. And if you're not ready, you're not ready. And that's, that's completely okay. We can always figure out other ways to reach people and have other conversations. That's also why I'm glad that we now have a social media platform because then not necessarily directly engage through in-person action, but you can still listen and think and let things resonate with you. It takes time. Every other healing process, it takes time. And bringing myself and my own identity into the space within both communities, I think based on my personal experience and now within the dogs I foster with other Black Asian people, I definitely have seen amongst both Black monoracial and Asian monoracial communities, we are the most rejected. We are among the most rendered invisible. Remember Connie Wun, um, uh, co-founder of AAP Women Lead, one of my icons forever. She was talking about how um, you know, Asian Americans are invisibilized. And among those, I think that, you know, disabled Asians are further invisibilized. Asians who are of dark complexion are further invisibilized. And Black Asians are among the most invisibilized just because, you know, we live in society that teaches us that Black people and Asian people have never... <laughs> done anything together that black and Asian people are incapable of loving each other for some reason it's I'm a weird freak scientific accident to some people (laughs) people still ask how how did you become black and Asian the same way you became white and white like (laughs) but bringing the identity into the space and centering is so incredibly crucial because if I'm experiencing this erasure, if I'm experiencing anti-Blackness and anti-Asianness at the same time, somebody else is. And I think people get to see my, my joy. Um, people get to see, you know, me wearing a t-shirt that says Blasian, Black and Yellow. Part of that is just so liberating. And I'm going to quote the civil rights icon, Fannie Lou Hamer. And she said, when I liberate myself, I liberate others. So I feel like, you know, entering a space for joy for myself, just so arrogant and so self <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> and I spent my center, my own ration, my own education that has been liberated, that has been healing. You know, I, I hope that that becomes something for other people it's an invitation to that space of joy and healing to step into that space of unapologetic blackness, unapologetic Asianness, unapologetic queerness. And for folks intersect with two or all three of those categories, it is a space I have that I am building and inviting people into. So like it's 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 taking my identity, laying it bare before the community and say, this is who I am. And I invite you to, to enjoy and celebrate who you are as people, you know? Yeah, I think that's really important. There's two parts to it, right? There's representation, which everybody talks about. Like when you see someone that looks like you, someone with your background or who has gone through the same things as you, 
have gone through, feel empowered and step into power spaces, you feel like you can do that. So it's like that piece. And then there's that piece of us talking about doing self-work, right? Like you are actively publicly doing self-work and that's just inspiration to everybody to do um, their, their own self-healing and their own self-work. I think that's great. And I do want to talk more about what's next. Like what is Blasian March doing next? Like what are your hopes for the future? Oh, 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 that's such a tough one. I know for sure we are organizing person action on June 5th here in New York. It's going to be pride themed. So we are centering Black, queer, trans folks, Asian, queer, and trans folks, Blasian, queer, and trans folks. And I'm really excited because there's so many new things I want to try, so new ideas I'm coming up with for this action. And after that, so a few weeks ago, there's actually another co-conspirator in Houston, and she's also Black and Asian. We together held a healing circle for other Blasian folks. Other people are mixed with Black and Asian, and they're just many painful and beautiful stories people were talking about. Um, there were some elders who were Black and Asian, and were talking about such extreme rejection from both communities that I think all of us mixed Black Asian people go through. And I was like, you know what, I, I have to document. So once the Blasian March is, is over, I really want to turn around and be like, we're documenting our stories. I want to know what our stories are. I want us to really document and, and volumize and put as a word, I made it a word, volumize and put like in writing what we have been through so people can better understand as part of the healing conversation, the harm we experienced, the very multifaceted harm that we Black Asians go through, you know? Our trauma isn't that I think a lot of monoracial Black people, monoracial Asian people need to understand to build solidarity long-term between other communities. Yeah, I love that. And for those of us who want to find Blasian March and who want to follow your journey in documenting the history and the stories of Blasian people, where can we find you and where can we find your work? Ah, my work. Okay, you can definitely find my work. At, so on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we are just Blasian March. I have a link tree right now that is link tr. EE slash Blasian March NY. And I guess my personal account, you can find me at Diary of a Firebird. Diary of a Firebird. I love it. <laughs> Leaving off, I want to have the listeners take a couple of key action items away from this talk that we've had. What are some things that you would like for the listeners to continue to think about and to take action? One thing to think is that as people of color who have experienced so much racial violence, much oppression, so much racialized trauma, every little thing you do for yourself as a practice of radical self-care, radical self-healing, these are acts of resistance and revolution. You know, you don't need to be on the front lines all the time to do revolution 
work for yourself, to liberate yourself. And definitely take away actions, continue to educate yourself. There are some documentaries out right now. I know on PBS, there's the Asian Americans documentary series. And I encourage both Asian and Black folks to watch it and understand what, you know, we all have really gone through in some capacity. There's books by Bell Hooks, Angela Davis, Yori Kochiyama. She was a Japanese-American organizer in the civil rights era who collaborated with Malcolm X. She has an autobiography, Grace Lee Boggs, who also has a few books out. She was a labor rights organizer in Detroit, also who marched behind Martin Luther King. These are all starting points. Yeah, I love that that you mentioned that. And actually, Yuri Kochiyama and Gracie Boggs being in the, the Detroit scene, which is where I went to high school, is literally what? where I started my activism. <laughs> was because I, I was part of the so YK <laughs> program, the Yuri Kochiyama program. And thinking back, there is such a strong activist playground there. So I love it. I feel like you've been doing such a great work educating yourself and getting yourself to a point where you are exhibiting your joy and you're organizing and you're building a community. And I would love if you could share some wisdom with some of the people who have not, you know, stepped into their power or don't know where to start or just are feeling lost. Oh boy. That's actually a really tough question. First and foremost, you need to be patient with yourself. Be patient with yourself. Learn to forgive yourself. And that takes a lot of time when we are, once again, in a culture that demands perfection or cancellation, right? So even though I can't help but point out white society, you've been canceling people of color for centuries through genocide and colonization. So... (laughs) Stop talking. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think that's the first starting point. Really learn to be patient with yourself. Learn to, learn to listen to yourself. Figure out what you need to figure out, you know, who you are, where you come from. That takes a lot of time. And I think it's something also really valuable, finding community, finding those support networks, those the people who will, you know, affirm you, lift you, but also at the same time, Hold you accountable to your mistake and don't be afraid of accountability. Y'all go through it. <laughs> there have been several times I've had to go through accountability processes during this work. It's just part of being human. I think that's a really good starting point. There's also, if folks go to buildingmovement.org, there actually is a social change ecosystem map. It details out where people can fit into the movement, you know, there are folks who are storytellers. So that can be people who are like you do, like what you're doing right now. It's documenting people's experiences. There are healers, caregivers, builders, frontline responders, visionaries. You know, every single person, when you find who you are, also a great powerful moment to also find your gifts and find gifts work in the movement, you know? There's a whole network of things that you can do. And as long as you find joy in what you're doing, that's all that matters. 
Oh, thank you. And I just want to say thank you for being here with me. I'm so glad that I was able to speak to you and connect with you again. I know we met up only once before, but I felt so comfortable (laughs) just reaching out to you and knowing that you're here for the greater community. I just, yeah, I'm so happy we got to connect again. Oh, and I'm so glad you were able to make some build space for someone like me when, you know, people still figure out what the hell a Black Asian is. (laughs) (laughs) And I just am so grateful to know you and the work you're doing. Same here. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. For more information, head to our website at whatgivesproject.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.